This is the Quantum Tech Pod, brought to you by Inside Quantum Technology, covering industry analysis, data, and market forecasting for quantum technology markets worldwide. Now, here's your host, Christopher Bishop. Hello, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone, depending on where you're sitting on the planet, and welcome. We're initiating a new format with this episode of the Quantum Tech Pod. We're going to have a group conversation with three distinguished guests and focus on a specific topic. So the topic of today's conversation is how to do due diligence on a quantum company. My guests are Worley, who's the CEO of Strangeworks, Ilana Wisby, the CEO of Oxford Quantum Circuits, and Morgan Politan, Senior Principal at B Capital Group. We're hoping to have a broad conversation today to bring in a range of topics from both sides of the proverbial equation, if you will, including management perspective and what VCs expect, as well as how and why startups, especially in quantum, should conduct due diligence on their money sources. So, Elana Worley and Morgan, welcome. Could you each take a minute and just share insight into your organization and what your individual roles are? Um, Elana, why don't we begin with you? Sure thing. Hi, thanks uh, so much for having me. So I am the CEO of Oxford Quantum Circuits. Um, I am a deep tech entrepreneur. Um, I love everything technology. I do hold a PhD in quantum physics, um, but if I am in the lab, something has seriously gone wrong now. Uh, my, my passion and focus is building incredible world-class teams, um, high-performance teams to do things that are going to help change the world. And that's what we're doing here at Oxford Quantum Circuits. We are building that quantum-enabled future. Um, and we are a pure play quantum compute as a service company. So we're putting quantum into the hands of customers through cloud access. Great. Thank you. Um, Worley, tell us about Strangeworks. Yeah. So at Strangeworks, we are basically trying to enable easier access to hardware from people like uh, Ilana. And uh, we have a platform as a service that allows our customers and consulting and pharma and aerospace to effectively get access to multiple quantum computers and all of the frameworks and everything they need so that they can program in one language uh, with one target endpoint. And then uh, we take care of the rest. Thank you. And Morgan, tell us about B Capital. Yes, thank you. Um, so B Capital is a global multi-stage venture firm. We have about $6 billion in assets under management. And I work at one of our funds, which is our early stage fund. It's called the Ascent Fund. Uh, and we actually just uh, uh, announced our fund a week ago. We are a $250 million fund focused on seed and series A. And we focus broadly on B2B uh, software, um, as well as uh, some deep tech opportunities like Quantum. So we are going to make our first uh, announced investment uh, in the coming months um, in Quantum. And uh, at my last firm, uh, Comcast Ventures, I invested in Zapata, which is how I got into this whole Quantum ecosystem without having a physics PhD. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you. So Morgan, I want to uh, start with you. I want to pose my first question to you. And it's around, obviously, due diligence. When VCs do doing due diligence on a quantum company, they almost always get some conflicting information, needless to say. So one expert might tell them company X is going to be a winner, and then another expert will downplay their chances. Um, as you said, being a VC without a PhD in physics or quantum, um, how can one sync up those opinions and sort through which side is more likely to be right? Absolutely. So, you know, I think the, the first thing to say is that VCs are always non-experts in any field that they invest in. 
whether it's a deeply technical field like quantum or even, you know, what many think of as a vanilla SaaS investment. And so I think the the act of diligence across both of those fields, even though they are different, is um, relatively similar, which is you try to talk to as many experts as you can um, and you try to triangulate their opinions until you get to some form of pattern recognition and conviction about a space, in other words, an investment thesis. And so in quantum, that's exactly kind of what I've done um, before, you know, in my first investment, which is I think 2018, you know, I spent six to nine months speaking to over a hundred people in quantum, um, you know, both professors and researchers, folks from industry, startup founders, obviously. Uh, and, you know, I just kept asking questions. I got a lot of conflicting opinions, um, you know, yeah. and... And I just kept trying to go back and clarify those conflicting opinions. So if one expert would say superconducting is the path to scale and another expert said no ion traps, um, I would get the reasons why. I would go back to the prior expert who said, well, you know, this this expert disagrees with you and says X and then get the response and say, no, well, this is why they're wrong. And, you know, you you go through enough iterations of that. Um, and it's all very high level. It's not like I was trying to actually learn, you know, quantum physics or be able to read papers. But you go to enough iterations of that kind of uh, diligence, and you know, after about six to nine months, uh, you know, we felt like we had a a, a good enough sense for um, where those opinions are starting to converge. And so there were several points where we just uh, marked them as TBD because there were so many disagreements across so many different experts that you know we felt look we don't have the ability to solve this agreement so we're just going to mark it as a risk but then there were other points where a lot of experts start to all say the same thing and actually agree uh and that's kind of where we focused our investing efforts yeah well thank you so worley with your ecliptic capital hat on i want to get your take on uh how you view kind of Computing deals, do you think they're mostly winner-take-all, which is difficult to get conviction on? Or do you believe there will be multiple winners, let's say, in hardware and software and even services, right, making it easier to get conviction and commitment? Yeah, I mean, I, look, I think that uh, in most cases, there's multiple winners. I also think it really depends on how you define winning, uh, whether that be some set return on an investment or uh, some market dominance or whatever. Uh, but it's a very nascent industry, and there's tons of room. I mean, this industry is going to change so much over the next 10 years. I think it's going to shock most people. So plenty of room for for more than one winner. I do, you know, obviously, as the software guy, I think that the value over time subscribes to software and, and hardware gets commoditized. But that's one of those things for investors to, to diligence, right? Um, could be totally wrong on that. Oh, makes sense. I want to shift gears a little bit. And Alana, ask you about strategic partnerships or government relationships and how they influence investment decisions. I know you recently closed around, and there's a lot of support in the UK where you are for quantum, right? The National Quantum Computing Center is mm -hmm. in process. And also, you know, relationships, for example, that uh, Oxford has with Amazon Bracket, which is very exciting. So what do you think that those relationships, uh, you know, how they impact investment decisions? Sure. I think they, they hugely impact um, and, and drive um, investment decisions. I mean, generally, if we think about the government first and more broadly, any type of kind of public market or government initiatives, which provide strong signals from governments, whether they're legislative or funding or otherwise, they're always very good, you know, private market 
drivers and indicators. And that's no different for sure for quantum. I think seeing government leadership via very strong actions, strategies, decisions and funding certainly helps influence um, and bring in private capital um, money. And the ways we've seen that work really well is particularly with government as a customer, because that's not only you know, showing that leadership, supporting a growing ecosystem, but also helping the company deliver on key valuation traction metrics and supporting the company in its own development with building customer relationships, delivering contracts, and of course, providing revenues, which um, investors, you know, even in this deep, um, deep tech space, you know, they're anecdotal revenues, but they are important and they're influential. And of course, with quantum, it's also an area of national strategic interest. So that means that governments all around the world have their own strategies and their own programs. And the UK has been very pioneering um, in terms of setting up these early quantum programs. And that has enabled Oxford Quantum Circuits to build really good relationships with the UK government. I know for a fact that that served as a, a key key point of influence with our recent funding round in terms of helping bring our new lead investors um, over the line. We do now also have government on the cap table. Um, so we've got the Breakthrough Fund directly investing into the company. We have non-dilutive government funded projects. Of course, any ways in which you can bring in additional non-dilutive funding is always very helpful. And we've delivered direct government contracts. So all of those things combined um, definitely help. It's also a fun fact why I received a letter from the Prime Minister (laughs) following the news (laughs) of our Series A, which is a very strange email to open. (laughs) Wow. Great. Thank you. Um, Morgan, I want to shift back to sort of the investment side and and get your take on how you manage LP expectations about investing in a quantum company, given it's likely to be a much more long-term commitment, say, than traditional VC processes. How do you have that conversation? What what are the points you bring up? You should separate um, two things. One is uh, the technical timeline to something like commercial utility for quantum computing and the exit timeline in terms of dollars invested into a company and dollars out through you know either an IPO, SPAC, or M&A, um, because those could be two very different things. And I, I think often in deep tech, they, they are. Um, so for example, if you look at the autonomous vehicle space, um, you know it's been a long time since initial research started on autonomous vehicles. It's been a long time since the first companies were formed. Uh, to try to tackle that. And it it still is not around, right? We're still working on it. Um, However, there have been exits because, uh, you know, incumbents have found it to be strategic to own some of those assets. So, you know, General Motors bought Cruise for a billion dollars. And so from a VC and LP perspective, um, I don't remember the exact timeline, but it was within the typical uh, exit window, which today is you know, averaging anywhere between seven to 12 years. And, and so I think it, it, in many deep tech uh, examples, the exits actually come sooner, which is kind of counterintuitive. You know, if you look at the, uh, the, the companies that have been, you know, unicorn and stayed private for a long time, you know, Stripe, for example, is, is probably the largest. And, uh, you know, that, that is not a deep tech company. Um, and so a lot of these deep tech exits, I think, 
M&A is one of the most common exit paths, and that can still happen within a fund's 10-year uh, life. Shifting gears again, so Ilan and Worley, I want to get your take on what the process was like for you as leaders at uh, quantum computing companies. Can you describe what the due diligence was like? Certainly don't want you to reveal anything confidential or proprietary. But based on your own experience, you know, both having raised institutional capital, how long does it usually take in quantum and how many folks do you need in order to find a lead? Ilana, why don't you go first, please? Sure thing. I think it's worth um, taking a step back um, just quickly and framing this more broadly. So less than 1% of companies that seek VC funding are successful in raising. And of those successful companies, when you go to the next round, you know, less than half are able to then raise a subsequent round. And those numbers just reflect like general VC dynamics. And now if we consider through this prism of deep tech and quantum, um, which is, of course, defined by you know, technology that may not ever work and, and may be very hard to find its, its market fit, it's inherently incredibly high risk. So if you apply that percentage um, all those previous percentages to that additional risk profile, I think you quickly realise that you're probably raising money for one of the hardest sectors in technology. And you know, as you touched on with Morgan earlier, diligence in this space is something which is incredibly challenging. Um, so to talk to what was the diligence process like, from my experience, investors are looking at a number of things. And I think the I think they talk about the seven T's often, but the ones that mostly we focus on are the technology, the team, and the traction. Um, and of course, diligencing technology um, in this deep, nascent, highly complex area. Um, I think the difference here is it, it does, as um, Morgan was talking to, have a very large academic slant. So we did find that we were talking to um, you know, world-leading top professors in the space from anywhere in the world Kind of digging into our technology and they were working with us and they were working with the investors directly to assess the credibility, the novelty, the challenges and, and the chances of success. Um, and obviously that's that's quite a difficult process and requires a significant amount of time to do um, properly. And then of course with the team, your team and you and every interaction um, is under continuous diligence. Like they're always, they're always diligencing how you're handling things, how you're interacting, um, what your team dynamics are like. Like ultimately, investors are investing in in you, and investing in a team. And when you want to pick a team or a bet to invest in, you're you're, you're picking that team, and you want to make sure you're you're choosing the right team. Um, and then the third point on traction during that extended process. We need to continue to do what we say we will do and meet milestones and demonstrate the valuation traction metrics and meet those milestones, which is why, you know, for launching on Lucy on AWS was, was so pivotal for the company, part of that process. Um, you asked how long it takes, how long is a piece of string? And then yeah. once you have that, probably double it. <laughs> and I have more to say, but I would, I'd love to hear um, Worley's thoughts. Yeah, so Worley, tell us about your own experience since, since you know raising institutional capital. How long? How many so, folks you need? So we so we have a different experience that makes it probably not relevant to to the, to the listeners because um, we came into this with our own funds uh, as well as you know a, a good track record. It's a team of fourteen people. All of them are founders. So uh, the first round was 
ridiculously easy to raise. When we left the first VC, we didn't get to the end of the driveway and they were like, accept this offer. And it was kind of the traditional, uh, you know, quick to invest the kind of thing. And, and there was extremely light diligence. Um, that leads into the fact that we are definitely a software company in the quantum space, not a quantum company. So we didn't talk to all those professors that Alana mentioned. We didn't go through, oh, let's see what you guys know about uh, physics. It was we were being judged on the software side of our skills and, and having that. Um, so that that was a little different. Now, that said, as we move to the second round, and Alana mentioned this, it's very true. Getting funded is hard. Getting funded again is you know, technically more difficult. We ended up taking our time on investors because of uh, some of the exit things uh, that Morgan mentioned, because a lot of funds, you know, he said, I believe seven to 12 years, these companies are, are exiting some of these, these unicorns and some of these deep tech companies. I found it disturbing that a lot of the funds that were looking to investing in us had a 10-year end, end date on the fund, and they were eight years into that. They already had a couple of exits that were more than a, a billion dollars, and they're on a waterfall that's a you know European waterfall, saying that they're going to be uh, you know they're going to need to have everything out of that portfolio before they cash out. And so that scared us because we're not going to be ready to sell or sell in two years or three years or maybe even five years. And so because of that, that's kind of we took a very long time. So we started looking for our Series A almost immediately. Um, we received, you know, dozen to 16 term sheets over the last few years, uh, and we didn't accept any of them. Uh, and that was part of our diligencing those companies. It was either not the right match. Maybe their vision was a little too short term. Maybe their fund was already too long in the tooth. Um, you know, uh, and there were some that were great. They were brand new funds. You know, they were starting the third or fourth fund, great track record. But the expectations on quantum were just off. It, it was very much they read an article and they believed it and they really thought, hey, you're going to go get, you know, five, $10 million in ARR or, or some crazy number. And it's just like, that's not where the industry is at. So we took a long time. We have signed our Series A and done our first close now. We'll announce that in a, in a few months. And we're extremely happy with who we found, but it did take us out of the venture world. So we cut all of the venture capitalists out of the funding uh, for the Series A. So it's 100% strategic. Uh, and then the plan is to be 100% institutional in the B. So a little a little different approach, and, and we're kind of a little outlier because we're not going to have to go through a lot of the the, the quantum um, beat up that a lot of can go through. And, and I don't have her knowledge or experience, so I couldn't do that anyway. <laughs> wow. Well, so so Morgan, what's your take on Worley's perspective, cutting out the VCs? How would you address that if uh, you were looking to an exciting company that you think warranted investment but getting shut out? It's an interesting question. The first thing I want to say is that, you know, if a VC is thinking about an investment out of a fund who is well past their deployment period, and so, you know, in other words, at a 10-year fund, uh, the, the example we really used was, you know, they're basically eight years in, they have two years left, they're, you know, they're supposed to be returning capital in their harvest period, and they're considering new investments at that point, like that is a clear mismatch. I mean, typically a fund um, would be investing, writing new checks out of a second or subsequent fund. And so that is very much a red flag. Um, and I would encourage founders to you know, ask and make sure you know, there's dry powder and enough of a timeline for, for VCs that they're speaking with. Um, you know, typically, the investment period is, I mean, it used to be five years. Now it's come down to like two or three. Um, you know, maybe you go back up to five in this macro environment. But 
um, there should be enough time for a company to, you know, exit before, you know, the VC will have to start, you know, pressuring their, their investments. So, you know, my LPs want capital back, like, let's talk about an exit. And if it's premature that, you know, that will not be good for the company. So, you know, bravo to Worley for doing that diligence. And I think other founders should follow that example. Go ahead. So you sort of mentioned like red flags. I want to get your take again, sort of other specific sort of signals, red flags that you look for when doing due diligence on a quantum company that you might not look for, say, in a more traditional tech company? Are there nuanced indicators that you, you need to be focused on? Yeah, for sure. And before, I just want to also just address the, um, you know, the, the kind of Worley's, uh, I guess, strategy. Congrats on the Series A, by the way. Excited to see that announced. And VC's getting cut out. And then I'll, I'll go to your question, uh, Christopher. Um I mean, first of all, I think if VCs are asking for, you know, traditional SaaS AR growth rates out of a quantum company, they clearly don't understand the space. So, you know, definitely do not partner with those VCs because what will end up happening is, you know, fast forward a year at your board meeting and they'll say, well, where's your 3x year over year growth rate? And they'll get frustrated and, you know, et cetera. So that doesn't play out well. Um, I think it's an interesting example, though, an opportunity, what, what Worley is saying, because um, I do think there's a gap in the market for for VCs to invest in deep tech. The way I've always framed it is, you know, deep tech startups often need a lot of capital, a lot of time before they hit commercial traction. And, you know, that's that's primarily product and engineering work and technical work. Um, and once they hit commercial traction, you know, typically the 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 trade-off that an investor is taking and the founder is taking is that the market will be big enough and the the solution will be defensible enough that you can monetize afterwards. Um, but it might take five years and you know several hundred million dollars before you get that. And so a lot of investors, uh, the, you, you know, your traditional kind of Series A to C or growth stage investors are not used to that, right? They, they when they come in, they want to see five, ten million in revenues, growing nicely, economics, etc. Um, and so uh, I, what often ends up happening, and, and this is kind of I think maybe what's happening with with Strangeworks is it, it ends up being strategic to actually take up a lot of that slack. Um, at the you know the A's and B's because you know they are more focused on the technology and the impact and don't necessarily need those hard financial metrics to to get across the finish line or get past their ICs and so it, I would frame it as as an opportunity because I think if 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 you if you did have a you know fund or funds that you know was kind of focused on that like later stage or expansion stage deep tech that they're it's not like they'd be competing against a lot of other traditional VCs and then you know just on the red flags point then I'll I'll shut up and let other people's talk you know I, I think there's probably 80 90% of diligence is is again the same you know what Alana mentioned team you know tech market size competition like that's all the same for you know a, a quantum versus your traditional SaaS I, I think maybe some other you know scientific rigor and credibility um, is much more emphasized in quantum, especially if you're on the hardware side and you're building, you know, something that is um, on the cutting edge of, of research. You know, we do a lot more technical diligence. We bring in experts um, and to meet with the company and, you know, give us their take. Um, and, and most importantly, you know, we speak to a lot of people just to get a sense for, you know, what is the the, the technical team of this company, like what is their standing in the community? Are they well-respected? Um, are they known entities? Have they published papers with you know other people? And that's so critical because I, I think we all know probably there are, there are people who may have on paper, you know, as, an, as someone not 
in quantum. You might see PhDs and they might look good on paper technically, but then if you go ask people who have been in the ecosystem for a long time, like I've never heard of this person and it's a small world, right? So I think gut checking people in that is is super important. Ilana, I want to give you a chance to share your perspective on sort of this what we're calling reverse due diligence, you know, as Willie was describing, make sure you're comfortable with the VC, especially if maybe they join the board or have major rights as a partner on your journey. What's what's your insight into how that's worked for you? Yeah, I think it's um, it's a really really important part of the process, and it is it is a two way diligence process. Ultimately, you know, this is a partnership, and we're going to be working together for a long time. And and to be successful together, we need to build a really strong partnership. And it's certainly not worth getting that wrong, because um, of course it, it can go really wrong if you get it very wrong. Um, so from our experience, um, you do of course build those two-way relationships and get to know the investors through the process that is is a long process. Um, we also of course have um, our incumbent VCs who are obviously keen to make sure that we get the right people in um, and have their own internal thoughts, their own processes um, and their own network. There are of course a number of quick questions um, that in that first call, when you first have your, your kind of introductory meeting with a, a fund that you can ask, of course, you know, digging into, okay, well, where are, um, where are you at in terms of your fund timeline? Is that an evergreen fund or is this 12 years? Where are you at in terms of deployment? Can give you quite a quick read as to whether or not that's um, a good fit. And actually, we're talking about the academic community being small um, and highly reputational. The VC community is also um, very well connected and hugely reputational. So brand names help talking to VCs to get reads on other firms and being able to use our existing investors to kind of get a feel for um, diligencing in that way. So that's kind of the soft stuff. Um, kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier about government angles, there is, of course, uh, the fact that quantum is an area of strategic national importance. There are new legislations and bills that basically put in place uh, government the opportunity to veto um, power on where we can source funding. Um, so often that helps me steer from a geopolitical perspective um, and empowers me also to ask questions quite early on and be quite upfront about, okay, I just need to check, like, are the, these funds from certain regions, um, for example, and make, and that's always helpful to have that government leverage behind being able to ask, ask some of those questions a little bit earlier on, so you don't waste too much time. I think one one example I can share: we did have an investment company out from Hong Kong, for example, and when we looked at the structure of what they were proposing and the concepts that they had around IP and the term sheets, we just immediately flagged that as something like we fundamentally couldn't couldn't work with. Um, I've also caused a COBRA meeting in the UK from a different term sheet I received, but I can't disclose more about that one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Great. Well, so we've come to the end of the session here. I want to thank you all for sharing your insight and perspective. I would ask uh, in closing that you each take like uh, a moment to share, you know, a nugget, a word of wisdom, a piece of advice that you would share as regards you know, doing due diligence on a quantum company. What, uh, Worley, why don't you go first? What would you say? You know, I'd say, uh, you know, I'm going to speak again from the side of the quantum company diligent the investors. As far as the investors diligent the quantum company, I think, look, Morgan mentioned some really great uh, thoughts on that as far as 
technical experts and people's rep in the community. He's very, very correct. It's a very small community and, and super easy to, to kind of diligence the, the people that way. As, as far as, you know, my advice, it, it'd be look, first, do you need to be raising money, right? The rules of running a startup are use it up, wear it out, make do or do without. So a lot of people are raising a lot of capital, frankly, that I don't think they need and, and, and signing up with investors that I think may have, as, as Morgan stated, the wrong, uh, you know, uh, kind of goals. And there may be a lot of misalignment there. Um, but, you know, that brings me to my, my only real piece of advice, which is two pieces. Remember, the word is not friend or buddy or co-founder, it's investor, right? And, and they have people that they're taking money from. And those investors have a product and that product is you. And that's why they keep all your pitch decks. So when they go and they pitch a big, uh, you know, institutional for $600 million and they mention quantum, they go, look at all these quantum deal flows we have, right? So, so never forget, never forget that they're out raising money often as, as much as you are, right? I and mean, they're, they're pitching too. And, and the, the second thing is alignment. The key to everything in a startup is alignment. When the needs of the company and the needs of the employees have alignment, magic happens. When the needs of the investors and the needs of the founders uh, align, magic happens. And so really the, the process of diligencing, be it an investor looking at a quantum company or a quantum company looking at an investor, really comes down to, uh, you know, and Alana summed this up really right, somebody that you're going to be working with for a very long time through some very hard to- hard times and who do you want in your corner, uh, you know, when, when those eventual hard times come? Startups are always in one or two phases. They're struggling or they're out of business. So, you know, thank goodness you're struggling. Who do you want to be in that struggle with? And, and I'll leave it at that. No, great. Thank you. Ilana, words of wisdom, some key takeaway that you want to share based on your role and your company's exciting progress. Thanks. Uh, I don't know how to follow that. That was some incredible advice. And I was sat here nodding along thinking, yeah, what, what's left for me to say? Um, I think to echo the point of alignment um, and to build on that end-to-end leadership, you know, powerful synergies happen when you have that end-to-end alignment and leadership and, and coalescing around a, a core vision and, and our values as well. Um, and that's from the clean room to the boardroom. So making sure that, that we have that um, and you're building those relationships and you have that alignment is, is you know, firstly, very, very important. The second piece, and I'm kind of pivoting here, is to someone that, you know, having just raised £38 million and had you know, extensive technical diligence um, and the privilege of that with the University of Tokyo Edge Capital and some of the world's, you know, leading quantum experts and then the bigger ticket coming from, Lansdowne, that was a really kind of good way of of leveraging and linking um, to what Morgan was saying, kind of a space which doesn't exist, where UTech came in late for them and Lansdowne came in early. Um, my point is that we've done a lot of the diligencing process. So from a, yeah. a company perspective, the, the point that that becomes most powerful is when we have internally an, an end-to-end narrative right and it's all comes down to this leadership pyramid of a complete alignment around who we are our values our vision our mission our principle and then our strategy and then as you dive into the technology you know we're simple we're scalable we're flexible and then as you build out the story and this narrative um, every time you kind of add a branch to the tree and then a twig to the branch you can take from from the first call a story arc 
which isn't just, it's not a story, it's a, a communication, science communication strategy that's carefully curated. And if you can do that in a really elegant way, whereby as every single person gets further and further and deeper and deeper into the tree and, you know, you end up looking at individual leaves, it all ties in and it all backs up and it's all evidence and it comes back to that core central pillar. And if you can create that, then you have complete alignment. Um, and I think that's when, from a company undergoing diligence, you know, that's that's a really powerful thing to be able to, to have created. So if I were to be advising a company, you know, a quantum company on, on how do we do that? It's all around science communications and, and credibility at that point in time. Yeah, what a wonderful image. I love that. Thank you. That's the, the tree metaphor. Morgan, I want to give you the last word. Uh, words of wisdom, nuggets to take away from the conversation about due diligence on a quantum company. Absolutely. And uh, thank you, Christopher. And yeah, both amazing comments from Alon and Worley. I agree uh, 100%. So I, I think I'll say from the perspective of an investor and maybe, you know, hopefully words of some kind of wisdom to founders of quantum companies, empathy, which may sound a little weird, but what I mean by empathy is putting yourself in the other person's shoes. And, and obviously investors have to try to do this for founders as well. But um, when, I think when it comes to an effective fundraise, putting uh, if a founder is able to put themselves in an investor's shoes and understand the incentives that investors face, the kinds of questions they ask and why they ask them, then you can kind of start to speak, you know, VC speak, I, I suppose, um, yeah. which will just make everything much more streamlined and you know, with a lot less friction. And it's it's not easy to do because you know as a founder you focusing uh, inherently on, on on mostly different things right there is a Venn diagram of overlap between the two but it's probably twenty percent right just naturally so as a founder you're thinking about what you want to build the product you know you're thinking about customers you're thinking about the vision um, you're thinking about how to keep the lights on right you're thinking about your team yeah right internal culture you know the, the roadmap there's all these things that you should be thinking on. But then the investors are thinking about that plus 80% of other things, right? They're thinking about what is the size of the market? What is the competitive landscape? Where are defensibility or barriers to entry? What is the likely exit scenarios? How might I get my money back? Is this going to yeah. be an acquisition? Is this going independent? Um, what is the timeline? How does that inform you know, uh, IRR? How does this investment relate to my existing portfolio, my fund strategy, which is dictated by my fund size? You know, How can I be value add? given, you know, the funds or firm that, that I'm with. So, you know, I, I think the, the founders who I've been really impressed with in their, in their fundraising um, are able to kind of understand the VC side of things, speak to those things, whether it's in their, their pitch deck, in the investment material, or just in conversations. And then, of course, subsequently, the investors who I think, um, you know, probably uh, have productive conversations with folks like Worley and Alana uh, are ones who can do the same. Um, and you know, have empathy for the founders and try to inhabit the mind space that they're in um, to the extent possible. So I know Worley has something to add if we have time. Yes, please, Worley, go ahead. Well, no, I mean, Morgan, well said. I agree, but you just reminded me of something that I'm always telling founders that, that I forgot to mention, which is the first time you diligence a, a VC as a founder is the moment you're looking to go ask for money before you even talk to them. And the reason I say that is, I see so many founders that get upset at VCs, right? The VCs are the bad guy because of this, the bad guy because of that. You cannot go to somebody 
like say Morgan writes $50 million and above checks and ask him for $500,000, it doesn't fit any of the rules of their fund. Like even if he wanted to, he couldn't do it. So that's not his fault. That's your fault as a founder for not doing the research before you went to make sure you have that basic alignment of, okay, they fund in the time I'm looking for, they fund the amount I'm looking for. Maybe I've already talked to a couple of startups they funded, you know, like the, this is the importance of diligence from the, from the founder side is so you, everything Morgan said is so spot on. Uh, and the way you avoid a lot of that and a lot of disheartenment is that empathy. And part of putting yourself in their shoes is saying, oh, I'm about to ask a person for a $50 million check who doesn't write more than million dollar checks in the early stage companies. But I see founders, even in quantum, doing that all the time. And I just think in fairness to the investment community, you know, that's on us to know who we're talking to and, and make sure that that's a basic alignment rather than just go pitch everybody you can and then get upset when you when you get rejected because, you know, you don't even fit their funds thesis or, or operations or anything. Yeah, no, great point. Thank you for sharing that, Orly. So we've come to the end. I want to thank you, um, Morgan and Ilana and Worley for sharing your perspective and your insight. Really delightful to chat with you. And I learned a great deal. It was a great conversation. I want to invite listeners to follow each of you and your companies on LinkedIn, point them to your company websites, um, follow you on social media, uh, you know, on Twitter, uh, certainly a LinkedIn community. Any of you have Instagram and they're looking forward to uh, continuing this conversation. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thanks. I want to say thanks again to Ilana and Worley and Morgan. Um, invite you to share this podcast on social media to expand the impact of this conversation. Uh, listen to my other podcasts if you haven't already. I also want to invite you to join us at our upcoming Inside Quantum Technology event focused on quantum cybersecurity, which is taking place in New York City, October 25 through 27. You can learn more and register at iqtevent.com slash fall. And please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. This has been a production of Inside Quantum Technology. You've been listening to the Quantum Tech Pod, brought to you by Inside Quantum Technology. For more information on this episode or other topics relating to quantum technology, visit InsideQuantumTechnology.com.